0: I'm Audrey Hollenberg-Duffy, and I'm
1: her husband Tim Hollenberg-Duffy.
0: We are a married couple doing pastoral ministry together under the faith umbrella of Anabaptism and Radical Pietism, more specifically in the Church of the Brethren, and most importantly, for Jesus.
1: We've always enjoyed chats about faith life because we found in each other a companion that gets us, even when it doesn't feel like we fit in the boxes of American life or mainstream American Christianity.
0: We believe the Church is crucial to faith and practice, and yet also accept that religious institutions are crumbling.
1: We believe being disciples of Jesus Jesus rarely fits a pre made container.
0: So join us for our meanderings
1: as we try to find a faithful Jesus way forward.
0: Welcome to this episode of Popcorn with the Pastors, a Coffee with the Pastors feature. And it's appropriate that this week our theme for our Popcorn with the Pastors is family, since we get to do this podcast with our brothers. So we're going to talk about family dynamics. Uh, looking both at how the Bible depicts families and connect that to how pop culture looks at families and how that might inform how we think of families, both in terms of biological families and found families and even our faith families. So any community that spends time together has a component or has components of what a family looks like. And they inform us about how we understand our families How families can be good, but also often how they can be dysfunctional. So let's start with looking at how families are depicted in the Bible. And part of what I think we're gonna do as we look at families is really deconstruct what is often a Christian idealized view of the family. And we're gonna do that simply by turning to the Bible, (laughs) which is, you know, should be our foundation for having these conversations anyway, but how how has the church kind of idealized family, and then how might we kind of tear at that a little bit just by looking at families in Scripture?
1: Well, the really cool thing about families in the Bible is that they all have two parents, two three kids. They live in single family homes. They're very high functioning, very faithful.
0: Uh huh. But yeah. the white picket fence,
1: white picket fences, blue shutters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And they have a dog and a cat and a donkey to carry them to Bethlehem.
2: <laughs> As we all do. Not.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, like the pressure that I feel like the church has put on people of faith, whether that is intentional or just a sort of a byproduct pressure. But that pressure has definitely been there. People feel it. And I mean, the clearest place We can see that as Sunday morning and that pressure we feel to make sure our children are behaving and that any problems that we had at the house don't carry over into the church. We like to keep our private lives private. There has been that pressure and that sense that the Christian family needs to look very functional and have everything together. But I I recall for a summer Sunday school that the church asked me to put on, they wanted to track sort of the genealogy of Jesus, looking at from Adam and Eve, the families that carried on. And you know, in Matthew, you have a genealogy that will lead you to Jesus. And so they kind of wanted me to use that as a framework and just talk about the story leading up to Jesus, taking us through the Old Testament. That was the main purpose. But as I got into it, a major byproduct, lesson, if you will, of that summer Sunday school was, man, the families of Jesus were messed up. (laughs) The families that led up to Jesus, I should say, were messed up. Uh, And that wasn't the intention. The idea was, oh, you know, summer Sunday school, it's intergenerational. We have a lot of families that are coming. Won't it be fun to look at families in the Bible? And I found myself each week kind of prefacing the lesson with, well, we have another dysfunctional family to talk about today. Uh, (laughs) You know, one of the favorite stories of the children were Jacob and Esau. They couldn't get over the fact that Esau sold his birthright for a cup of soup. But as a parent, I'm looking at that thinking, you know, Esau's complaining that he's starving to death. Like literally I'm going to die if I don't eat. What good is a birthright if I don't get soup? And Jacob takes advantage of that. And I, as a parent, I'm thinking, you know, I think Esau's is being dramatic. I've seen my kids hungry and they've acted like they're going to starve to death if they don't, you know, get something to eat. And was, was he really starving to death or being dramatic? And, it becomes very relatable.
2: Mm-hmm. Of course,
3: not the whole selling the birthright thing, but taking advantage of the other person, you know, when one of my children is, is having a bad day and rough, the other one likes to poke at them. You know, you see that family dynamic, and it made it a little more relatable and made me feel better about my situation. So the fascinating thing is, it's not that we need to criticize the families of the Bible. It's In some ways, they're just more real than, than we have in our mind. We idealize them because they're the, the major players in our faith tradition. But the advantage would be to say, oh, look, and they're not perfect. Mm-hmm. And yet, through these dysfunctional families, Christ still came.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and
3: Incarnation still happened. And that should be like a powerful message. So why there's been this fascination with sort of idealizing what the Christian family should look like, on the one hand you know, it's not a bad thing to encourage us to be kind to our children and our spouses and and to to try to live in a certain way. But there also needs to be that grace too, I think.
2: Yeah, I I like that idea. I'm thinking of Bible characters. They're not meant to be examples or models. They're meant to be mirrors. The focus is not, you know, why can't we be more like these characters? But See how God uses these characters in all of their real mess.
0: Yeah, and, and it doesn't take long going through scripture to have a dysfunctional family. <laughs> we are not given the permission to live very long in the myth of a perfect family when the very first family in Scripture falls apart. <laughs> I mean, even with Adam and Eve, you start with this, you know, ideal picture in the garden, but they're they, scripture doesn't dwell there long before Eve is convinced to take this fruit from the tree. And then she gives it to Adam and then Adam turns around and points the finger at Eve and saying, she did this. And then Eve says, no, the snake did this. And then, you know, you get the curses that go with the disobedience. And so even the first couple before there's even talk of a next generation, there's some strain in the family. And then who are their kids? Cain and Abel. Another sibling pair that maybe we shouldn't idealize.
3: <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, I remember for one of my birthdays, I have a we have another brother, Audrey and I have an older brother, and he gave me a birthday card that essentially uh, I forget exactly what it said, but the inside was I may not be the best brother, but at least I'm not Cain. <laughs> and so <laughs> essentially saying at least I haven't killed you. Right. (laughs) And so I'm like, well, there is truth in that. It's fascinating also because in Adam and Eve, that story, there's not even that sense of, of family that we have today. Like one of the things when I go back and look at that story, there's not a sense of them even being married. They've been paired and they have children, obviously, but the whole, what a family is, is, is just getting worked out uh, in that story. And, and we don't have the concept of sort of marriage and and being betrothed to one another until later in scripture, but it's sort of sort of the point I feel like of that creation story is just how quickly humanity falls away from perhaps what God would desire from us, and dysfunction becomes sort of the norm, so that again that pressure we feel to present our families as, as having it all together flies in the face of, of what the Bible from the beginning is showing as a reality of human life, so instead of learning how to deal with dysfunction, we try to mask it. And that becomes a problem, I think, for families in the church.
0: The other thing I like about if we truly look at families in scripture, not only do we get a picture that families aren't all put together, but there's also many different types of families in scripture. You get uh, multi-generational families, you get in-law families, when we get to talking about the new Testament, you get non-biological families and that language becomes pretty central to what it means to be the church. So what are some of these other families that might be a little less, uh, like what we might picture as a, a family unit that we read about in the scripture?
2: Well, starting pretty early, you know, if you got Abraham and Sarah and then Sarah has says, uh, Oh, here, have a kid with my, uh, slave woman. Well, that's an interesting addition to the family. And then Ishmael, who's a half brother to Isaac. And there's these two moms in the camp. And then that develops later. Jacob ends up marrying four different women and having lots of boys and a girl from them. You get the idea that there's a lot of jealousy about that, a lot of sibling rivalry. The spouses themselves are competing. At the end, there is a sense of reconciliation. That's one of the things that the Bible does hold up as kind of a, a
3: moral example in families is the goal of reconciliation. Yeah, and the in the earlier example of Jacob and Esau, that becomes a major piece. Much, much later. But the reconciliation piece it's an uneasy peace between the two they still kind of go their separate ways but it's a very it's not a fairy tale ending it, it's not the disney running in a field towards one another into a brace to beautiful music and, and everything is fine and they live happily ever after like there's fear like okay is he going to kill me is is there going to be a fight and they reach a tentative peace and they go on their way, and we don't really know exactly what the relationship is mo- much farther than than that. But the Bible is very careful to to sort of not fit, fan- like give us that fairy tale ending, and be very real, but also say reconciliation is the goal. But a lot of families deal with sibling rival- rivalry. Like that's a common thread. That's nothing new. It's very biblical. The favorite child, or the favorite spouse, or spouses playing favorite, trying to predict, uh, position their children in places of favor, it, it, you know, very interesting dynamics that, again, we, we struggle with yet today.
0: That's why I love your, your comparison, Andy, to it being a mirror rather than an ideal, because the reason why the Bible is still so relatable today, even though so many of the stories are from cultures that may not be completely relatable that these structures uh, continue to play themselves out. I love the the kind of non-traditional family of support that gets created between Ruth and Naomi. Of course, that's a, a mother and daughter-in-law relationship that ultimately is stronger than some of the other biological family relationships in scripture. You know, they they become a lifeline for each other, both in terms of emotionally and literally keeping each other alive by finding food. And that's a a unique relationship. It's interesting that it's the phrase that Ruth says to Naomi that we often read at weddings, the sense of commitment to one another, that wherever you go, I'll go, Uh, your people will be my people, your God, my God. Uh, We use that that commitment language in the choice of coming together in a union. There's not other good examples of that in terms of husband and wife language, but the yeah. mother and daughter-in-law language becomes that that ideal commitment.
3: The irony of that is, of course, the stereotype we have is that mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law are a ten- tenuous relationship, not a good relationship. Which reminds me of two things. One, of course, when we're when we're speaking of families in the Bible, it's important to remember the context and culture that they're in. So a lot of the the rules and, and laws that we find in the Old Testament are with the assumption of a patriarchal society. So Ruth and Naomi coming together was not just a, a sweet moment, but also was for their protection, because to be a, a widow in that time was a, a dangerous thing. It you, you were at a disadvantage. So we have biblical laws about if your brother dies and and he had a wife that you're to care for him. And that was meant to sort of protect and and keep family units together uh, in that time. But the other thing that I think that leads us to is this idea of, of found family, this idea that family is bigger than just what you're born into and and a blood. That becomes, I think, more and more an important theme as we get into the new testament where where jesus starts to say things that especially for the church where we're talking about the importance of the the family unit and we even hear that language today oh we need to restore the prominence of the family well jesus says some things that kind of fly in the face of that and, and and lead to perhaps some uncomfortable conversations and luke jesus says to people that are following him, well you must be willing to leave your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. Uh, if you love your mother more than me, then you can't follow me properly. But then we get this idea that what Jesus is calling us to is something perhaps a little more profound and is inviting us to expand the very idea of family. And we see that mirrored in churches. We we use familial language to refer to one another sometimes in the church of brethren. Brother and sister were used to refer to Anyone in the church that was a member in the church that you were in, we've seen that in other faith traditions where priests are all referred to as father. Uh, And so you, you, you begin to see this familial language shift and this idea that, yes, there's biological family, but in the church, there's something that becomes perhaps equally important, and that is that found family.
2: I've always been interested in the words family and friend and how i think our traditional ways of thinking about them are like circles right this is my primary community is is a family right that's our that's our core group and then there's an, another another circle outside of it that's our friends and then there's another circle that's acquaintances coworkers and then larger community but those are human defined words even that construction that f- our blood family must be the most important circle in our lives is just because that's the first people we know. It doesn't mean they have to be. Uh, at what point does a friend become a family member?
0: I think another thing to keep in mind is that especially in the Old Testament, your religious community, it was a heritage. The the push, I think, to biological family and why Biological families are so critical in Hebrew scriptures in particular is because they had direct impact on mm-hmm. your faith community because they were literally one and the same,
1: <laughs> and the Bible waffles on that a little bit. You got Ruth the Moabite right right the outsider, and of course we know what Nehemiah does with um all of the outsiders. They're the problem, send them away, right? And so you got this back and forth of, we've got to preserve this this ancestral thing. And yet the reality is we're going to work outside of that and and we can kind of shift back and forth. But there's no really clear ideal amidst that waffling of what actually works, because as Nathan's series on the genealogy of Jesus proved, Insiders and outsiders alike were in the genealogy, and they were used to pave the way to Christ. I'm curious, though, we've named a couple values that are clearly raised up in the biblical narrative as far as what is important in our families, if it's not some rigid, pure structure institution. So you all have named things like reconciliation, commitment, faithfulness, supportiveness, the new testament concept of a of a, an expansive chosen family. Would you raise up other family values, biblical family values, uh, <laughs> so to say, before we jump into
2: maybe some pop culture instances? I think the prodigal son parable is riffing off of some of those earlier Hebrew stories of brothers, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, but the father in the story is actively trying to keep the family together and I see that as another another value of you know the striving to hold the family together and to let people know that there doesn't need to be favorites there don't need to be power struggles there's enough love to go around for everyone it's not a finite quantity uh, if someone else gets the attention of the moment, it doesn't mean that you are forgotten or sidelined or need to find a new
3: home. there's a a belonging, yeah, I like that idea of belonging you just brought up because what I love about the story of the prodigal son is in that tense moment where the the father's talking to the oldest son. The oldest son uses language almost of disowning he He refers to his younger brother as this son of yours, like doesn't claim doesn't say, well, my younger brother did this. It's like this son of yours, which is very like disowning language. And the father, it's a nuance, but responds, well, don't you see, we had to celebrate because this brother of yours, he kind of forces the the relationship back on him and says, no, 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 we're not gonna, we're not gonna just throw him out that easily. You're not gonna disown the relationship that that easily. You belong, he belongs, we all belong. And I always found that really powerful. But yeah, I do think it's fascinating to think of that as some ways as a corrective to some of the, or a critique, if you will, of some of the Old Testament families where, again, it's not, we don't hold up to an ideal where they were showing favorites to the oldest or to the youngest son, uh, where there was that sense of one son having preference or one child having preference over others. In this story, the father doesn't fall into that trap. There's a sense of there's enough love to go around, which again is something that if there is a story, because it is a parable and not just the story of a family, that it's a little more idealized of what we're trying to live into. This idea that there's enough love to go around, whether that's found family in the church or our biological family. Yeah, Jesus isn't telling this
2: parable to teach immediate families to get along with each other. Right. He's, he's, he's talking about community. I am thinking about the role of family as mutual support and encouragement and to teach like what is what is life about. Parents are the first the first real teachers a child has, your orientation to the world, to life. There's lots in scripture about the importance of how to train your children in in the faith, in ethics, how to be a productive part of the family, but also part of society. The Proverbs that talk about, lots of Proverbs, training up a child in the faith, right? And they'll grow, they'll continue to grow as they get into adulthood. I think about the almost scripted way of Teaching kids about what Passover is. Why do we celebrate this holiday? Well, this holiday is remembers what God did to our people in the Exodus story, and and the kids ask questions, and the adults uh, lean into them. Right? They lean into the, the the kids, and that seems to be a primary role of what family should be about. We may start life being family because we have the same blood connections but a strong family remains together
3: because they have story and faith connections. Yeah, it is fascinating because not just the Passover story, when they crossed over the Jordan river, there's that, they they build the, the cairn, if you will. And there's the, why we put this here. So when future generations ask, you can tell them what God did. That's a common theme. Tell them our story.
0: That seems like a good transition to talk about some of the, the, way pop culture tells the story of families. So what are some of the ways that, whether it be TV shows or movies that depict families in particular ways and what that tells us, especially, you know, we can trace it, I think a little bit in how certain generations viewed family and how, you know, what what particular pieces of family were highlighted. So let's maybe, let's start historically a little bit and think about some of these original uh let's let's think sitcoms what are some of the original sitcoms or tv shows that uh, talked about family and what did what did they hope that people would glean about families
1: well the white picket fence myth uh is essentially leave it to beaver and not the bible yes (laughs) that's right and that's mom and dad and and the kids and Doing their daily kind of thing and solving simple problems and in the family households that mom or dad always has the wisdom to solve.
0: And everybody has their role.
1: It's, yeah, it's a simple, simple construction of an institution. It was an imitation of what the American dream myth was supposed to be for any household. And we put it on the screen to let people
3: see that and strive for that. Yeah, sitcoms don't stay there for real long. (laughs) No, No, I would say by the 70s, you start to have some shows come in that are more realistic, if you will, in the sense where they're dealing with harsher things than the Leave it to Beaver sort of sitcom would allow. All in the family in the 70s dealt with really scandalous uh, ideas and thoughts for the time and sort of became a launching point for sitcoms to to deal with the things that real families, if you will, are dealing with, and to push back against sort of the, the traditional white picket fence family view. I don't watch a whole lot of them, but I think from that point on, you have less and less of that sort of idealized family and more and more of where the, the sitcoms are mirrors to the reality of, of what families are facing. I'm thinking back
2: to the Leave It to Beaver Generations. I don't want to be too harsh on them even though I know they set up this unrealistic ideal. But I see them as coming out of a time period of history, especially in America, that's full of change, full of trauma, full of brokenness, coming out of depression and wars. And the family breakdown is happening in the early 20th century. In some ways, people just want to go back to something simple. They want to have something stable, two-parent family and your kids. Does it get much more simple? Well, <laughs> it depends on the day. It's it's not just an a moral ideal, it's a therapeutic ideal. And then as we we're saying, later generations say, well, yes, we do, but it's still complicated. We, we We need
3: to find that balance between the model and the mirror. I think about a more modern show, modern family, and the message is somewhat similar, except for the fact that it's not being a traditional family. What's most important still is that mutual support and care for one another, and that we can overcome dysfunction and a not normal looking family to still find something meaningful. So in some ways, what people are grasping for is the same. It's just now shows tend to say you can get that despite being dysfunctional or despite not looking, quote unquote, traditional.
0: Yeah, I mean I think the reason why the sitcom tends to revolve around families is there's recognition in pop culture of the great good that a family can provide in terms of stability and support even when there is issues. The reason why these TV shows keep coming back to it is because it is a it is an institution that has the possibility for great good, even despite the fact that there's dysfunction. So, of course, in our formative years, we had TGIF. (laughs) We had the lineup of Full House, Family Matters, Boy Meets World, which is our favorite. (laughs) (laughs) You also had The Cosby Show, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Home Improvement, all of these were shows that the central story was a family. What are some of the, I think, nuance of a 90s family that we see in some of these
3: shows? Some of them lean pretty hard into tropes. I don't know enough to say if that was a helpful thing or a bad thing. I remember we watched Everybody Loves Raymond growing up, and if there ever is the trope of sort of the problematic mother-in-law, and then also sort of the the buffoon father, and that is a reality of some families. But I also do wonder sometimes if sort of just hammering home on those tropes is not a helpful thing either. It sort of gives permission to, this is what a family's supposed to look like, and the father is supposed to be a clueless buffoon, and the mother-in-law is naturally overbearing, and, in home improvement, it's similar concept is sort of the the buffoon father and the the wise habit altogether mother and the kids who are constantly getting in trouble in some ways they still have a more realistic view of what family is that it's messy so there's there's value there. But I also do kind of wonder when they play when they just sort of lean so heavily into tropes like that where I almost feel like the characters are stuck there.
2: I I think uh, the Cosby show, you know, we we can say what we want about Bill Cosby today, but at the time, it was popular with lots of different groups for displaying a Black family in a traditional white, we could say, family setting. But then there's a pushback to the Cosby paradigm as other Black-led sitcoms display the family dynamics as a little more complicated. I've been rewatching The Fresh Prince of Bel Air the past few months and they take hot shots at the Cosby show like every other episode. They're like, Oh, why can't you be, you know, more like the Huxtables or something, you know? But it's also trying to say, you know, real life is more complicated and maybe we need to play with what that means a little more. What does that mean as far as race is concerned, class? We can be more nuanced. I mean, we know what we know what the Cosby show is attempting to do
1: to show an in- inclusive and positive <laughs> view of of black families that wasn't always depicted in in sitcoms beforehand and then yeah fresh prince comes along as a as a immediate mirror corrective as you move through the 90s i want to get us beyond these biological kind of families because we do see a very clear shift of these uh young professionals Living in cities away from their families and forging new families, and so Will and Grace become a bit of that uh, roommate and then extended friend uh, family base. Of course, you have friends, (laughs) which really kind of paves the way for Big Bang Theory, How I Met Your Mother, The Office, um, Parks and Rec. I mean, some of the most popular sitcoms of the last twenty years play on this concept of how do we find new families um, as we as we migrate and move, which was a mirror of our culture I mean in the last twenty years, it could be expected that your kids were not going to stay local right they were going to go off to college and and move on, and so we needed a a construction for maybe how that's done, how you do that
2: yeah i I find it interesting also how biological family is presented in found family, friend-based stories. When so-and-so's mother or father come to town and it brings up all these old feelings and issues and stories and uh, and things that they would rather forget. Well, I've been trying to remake myself since mom treated me this way. and it, It just highlights the complications a bit more. But it also highlights the kind of radical love and acceptance that a found family can have especially when a blood family falls short. And it's also interesting to me, the rise of the workplace friendship sitcom or things that center on a a social location, like how I met your mother always has a bar, friends has a coffee house, cheers. What do these people have in common? They just happen to be in the same place in the same time. If you're intentional, you can grow relationships almost anywhere. So, Andy, you're the Disney expert
1: in the room. Maybe you do, Audrey, especially in some of its newest movies. Uh, this concept of broken families of origin <laughs> and then the creation and forging of new familial relationships.
0: What I like about Disney movies, especially more recently, there's been a kind of turning back to families in different ways. Uh, you get the frozen uh emphasis on the relationship of sisters that also then includes found family and the whole second movie is like even though things are changing and there's a lot that's unpredictable we still have each other that's i think a helpful thing to think about when we move from maybe the family of our childhood at some point we cross over a threshold where the family has to be redefined and there's a lot of conflict that can come in that era of transition, you know, we kind of have to recommit ourselves to that family unit with shared meaning, but also knowing that it's going to look different as we move out of that core identity that was our childhood family.
2: Yeah, it seems like Disney likes to lean into those reconciliation themes, just like the, the early stories of the Bible, I think. They usually end with with tense relationships coming back together, with forgiveness. It's interesting also the, the real dislike of step-families in early Disney. You put the word step in front of somebody's title and you know immediately they're the bad people, they're the villains of the story. Step-mom, stepsister, that sense of, well, something's broken and you're a replacement.
3: I, mean, I think Disney has been doing, in my mind, some correctives. And I think that's one of them, where you know the traditional family family was still sort of the ideal. So step parents or stepsisters were the evil ones. Anything that sort of broke up the the norm was bad. But like, Arthur, you reference Frozen, and what I love about Frozen is you have the younger sister and people who are Disney people are going to yell at me for not knowing names. Uh, not Elsa, <laughs> Anna. Anna, Anna. There we go. <laughs> but what I do remember is that you know Anna falls in love and there's this sense of the Disney romance and oh they're going to get married and then the whole premise is like you can't just marry someone you just met like this is ridiculous and that was like a big Disney princess corrective to oh you rescued me I'm a damsel and now we're going to get married because that's what you do and that's how families get started no you know women can be uh, empowered and they don't they don't have to be rescued and, and they can be the heroes of their own story, if you will. And relationships need to be a little more complicated than they've been presented in the past. I also see in A Canto, that another more recent movie, they've been correcting the sense of, of what it means even for a fairy tale ending. What I loved about that story is it was about a dysfunctional family and sort of pressures that each family felt to fulfill the role that they felt assigned to. And how those pressures that we put on sort of boxing each other into roles is, is a negative, which really pushes back against sort of some of the traditional families we've seen, that you must be pigeonholed into this is your role for our family. And that really it's much more fluid than that. And that we are much more complex than the role we happen to be filling in our family. But I love at the end that, you know, you don't end with the the main character getting superpowers like everyone else. And that's the happy ending, everyone learns to be valued for who they are and that's deeper than the roles or the powers that they have. And so a lot of what they've been doing recently, I think has been sort of corrective to sort of their past. But I also think I just want to add in there, as you start watching Disney, it is sort of fascinating how often the movies begin with the parent dying. There is something about
2: that that goes back to the Western heroic story. The foundational hero's journey, going back to ancient mythology and into traditional medieval literature. And then today we see them in superhero movies. Most superheroes are orphans. Harry Potter's an orphan. Luke Skywalker's an orphan. When you don't have that kind of stability, you have to go on a quest to discover that. And um, we, a lot of these things have the found family pops up. Superhero teams are found families with people who are different and they're struggling, but they have a common purpose and they learn to care for each other in spite of their differences. Every Star Trek starship crew is very similar. Everyone has a a role in the family, but they rub against each other the wrong way. But in the end, it's a family dynamic that we come to love about them. And you brought up Encanto, that and Coco, right? Both recent Disney editions that look at family from a Latino or Latinx perspective, where the extended family altogether is the ideal, but it's hard to find your place, or there's family trauma or heritage that people are brushing up against. And
0: yeah, I think that's going to transition us well to. Kind of get to our, our last key points here. What does all of this have to do with our sense of our own families today? What does a faithful family look like? And, and what does a faithful church look like? One of the things I think that these uh, newer movies that still keep families intact, and then deal with the drama of identity shaping, is that it plays with a really important tension that i think is true of any community whether that be a biological family or now shifting in my mind to what what an ideal church looks like is that there's always this pool between individual autonomy and communal understanding and support both in in canto and koko the family as this individual goes through a process of refining their identity, the family itself shifts to make space for that person. It's not just the story of an individual person finding their identity, but it becomes a whole family trying to work within this idea of how do we broaden our understanding to include this person? So for Coco in particular, the boy loves music. But the family has a a traumatic past that has caused them to push music aside. And so that tension becomes, how do we be a family that includes this person, that something that feels important to him and becomes central to who he is, works outside of the norms and structure that we've created as a family. And I see this playing out in churches right now in really significant ways. We talk about the Church of the Brethren Annual Conference being like a family reunion. Uh, And sometimes that's because not unlike Hebrew scriptures, there's a lot of people that are just biologically related. We see some of that tension in our own denomination right now when we are trying to make sense of how do I be an individual in a system where you know we've got these set values, but I'm feeling like I'm rubbing up against it in this way. How far do I lean into community? At what point do I step out of the community? Those are all conversations that are happening in a lot of denominations right now, and that's part of the reason why when we talk about splits, some of the language that feels relatable to us as we talk about it as a divorce. <laughs> or a breaking up of the family. There's those familial language that feels really familiar as we talk about these dynamics. I think oftentimes in in the church, when we're dealing with these things, we look to the community of Acts. Um, We've done that all along, but I think if we do that now, we might actually see something a little bit different. Acts is a community that didn't actually have it altogether in the way that we don't have it altogether.
3: And that's what I find so fascinating. We, we began our conversation with sort of the myth of the, the traditional family that the church perhaps, whether it's intentional or not, has portrayed there. And there's a sense of if we're going to be a Christian family, we must look like this and at least present ourselves as having it together. And a lot of the tension we're finding in a modern church is portraying that same myth about what a denomination should be. An undergirding assumption of that is there, there's too much diversity in, in who we are as a church, that we're supposed to look a certain way and supposed to agree on these main principles in order for us to remain the church. There's almost the assumption of if there's dysfunction, then the answer is to go separate ways. But I think what Culture of the Corrective is providing us with this sort of mirror that we're seeing is that family is always involving a choice, whether it's biological or found family. It requires commitment and reconciliation, and it's hard work. That's, that's a common theme of a lot of cultural things is you have to overcome some difficult things. And there always is that option to walk away. But if you're committed to family, there are ways to overcome those tense moments. And so sometimes I wonder, have we idealized? what the church family is supposed to look like, where if we just accepted that part of being a church family is messy and having disagreements, but also deciding, making the choice that we are going to work through them.
1: That's on a large scale denominational level, but then even on local congregation levels, we do have local congregations who would be much more leave it to beaver-ish, where it is pretty homogenous and simple and people generally see things alike. But like where we serve at Oakton, we're kind of like the friends of the church world where we all moved to the city for work. We found each other. We've got some basic kind of things like each other, but yeah, we've all got, we've all got separate histories and different paths and different families of origin and, and we're figuring it out together. And churches like this without an assumed homogeneity, we've got an assumption that there's going to be some level of friction or or fracture in, in how we're going to understand life together.
0: Right. You, right. you actually have to have the conversation about core values rather than assuming yeah. that you're on the same page about them.
1: The whole conversation about splitting the Church of the Brethren, Oakton's. not even going to have that conversation, right? Yeah. It's, just, it's just an irrelevant thing. And that's not because we don't have a diversity of opinion. We do. These are people that
0: have already... <laughs> Chosen to enter into the mess together in some ways,
2: well, yeah, so there are families that are blood, there are churches that are pretty much blood i'm I'm in a church right now that is a lot of historical brethren families, but we also have folks that aren't connected that are coming in, and it's interesting to see how that dynamic plays out. They choose when they become members of the church to take vows, to be faithful to one another as a faith family, regardless of origin. Going back to the Bible comparisons we were making earlier, if there's any family unit in the Bible that's the ideal, it would probably be Jesus's own immediate unit. Mary is quick to say yes to God's call. She seems to be faithful to Christ. Joseph who is a good guy, and, and even though he wants to divorce Mary quietly, right? He's not out for blood. He's not out for revenge. He, he wants Mary to be well. He hears the call to marry her anyway. He takes it in faith, and he seems to be a good father figure caring for them on the journey to Bethlehem and Egypt and back. But it doesn't mean that things are going to be easy for them. In fact, saying yes to God's call usually means things are going to get harder for a while but for a good reason. But Joseph chooses to be a part of that family by God's call. He's not blood-related to Mary or Jesus, yet he raises Jesus as his own son. And I can't help but think that God picked him for a reason and picked Mary for a reason. And I think about the folks that come into our churches. I hope that they also feel that call and, and that the folks who grow up in our churches, whether blood or not, are there because they choose to be in relationship with one another and not just because, well, this is where my family always went, and the last four generations are buried in the
3: cemetery. And I do think it's important, at least in the Church of Brethren, we use a lot of familial language and commitment and choice language. For example, we don't do infant baptism, but we have baby dedications. And sort of the the assumption which is not unique to the church of the brethren or the christian church is the idea that it takes a village to raise a child and so a lot of the language we use is we're asking you know we're asking the parents do, do you commit to continue to bring your child to church because we recognize just from a societal standpoint that children who are brought up in the church or who learn the faith like we see in the old testament are much more likely to feel that connection to the story of who we are so there is that importance we recognize in family units doing faith together. It's not the only way, but it's something valued in scripture and something we continue value in the church. But we also ask the church vows of commitment because we recognize even in the biblical model, what it meant to raise a child in the church was not just a mother and a father going to church as, as a separate unit. It was something much bigger than that. So for baptism, we have that language too, where we're asking for individual vows of commitment, but we do those those baptisms not away from the church body, but as part of the worship service, because we recognize you're not just being baptized because of your faith, but you're being baptized into something. And it is your choice to do that. It is our job to accept you as, as who you are. So we use a lot of that, that, fami- that familial and choice language in sort of those pinnacle moments of church life together. I think that's intentional and represents the best of what church life is. You know, it, it, we've been talking about the, the real dynamics of families and how they're messy, and it's not to diminish our goal and, and, and hope for what a family should look like. It's the recognition that it's never that simple. But we recognize in, in church life that families that have supportive parents who bring their children to church are much more likely to to grow in appreciation for what church family is and to make that choice for themselves later. But we also recognize that's not the only way that it happens and that there are families who are brought up in the church who end up leaving. And there's people who were not brought up in the church who end up finding family. And so the church has to be open to all the possibilities of how the family of God grows. The story of Mary and Joseph, I think, is powerful in that sense because it, it involved a lot of intentional choice. It wasn't just Mary and Joseph had a child, and then they were told, oh, by the way, this is going to be an important child. Your family is going to be great. From the very get-go, it was complicated and messy. It continued to be messy in Scripture. I mean, we don't get a whole lot of information, but they don't fully understand Jesus' ministry. We get that sense. So there's support, but there's also miscommunication and misunderstanding, just like the disciples do. Part of Jesus' ministry is expanding what it means. The disciples become family, but so does Mary. Mary continues to be Jesus' mother and plays an important role in in the story of of Christ. And in some ways, we get the impression
2: a little bit through the book of Acts and, and even the later parts of the Gospels that Mary almost becomes like a mother to the church. She's there with the disciples at the crucifixion and some later things. She's a part of that larger family that her son ushered in. She chooses to stay.
0: Yeah, I think if we were to whittle down this conversation into a couple key phrases, it seems to me that when we're talking ideal, what we mean is not perfection, but what we mean is commitment and intentionality. And with that comes a whole host of characteristics like love, support, willing to shift and change so that more and more people can be included in this thing that is mutual and caring. I think it's helpful to remember that the church is ultimately a stepping stone community and that the church is not the kingdom of God. The church is a transitional community that bears glimpses and images of what this ultimate community that is completely centered around God's will and God's goodness for the world. We see glimpses of that in the church. But it, it's never going to be that. If we go in expecting it to be that, we are always going to be disappointed. So much so that we may think that it's best to keep searching out that perfect community. And that that causes us to maybe leave and say, we're going to go over here and, and given these rules, we're going to make this pure kingdom of God community, rather than entering into a system of people that we willingly commit to, but also know that they're going to disappoint us at certain times and that they're gonna fall short of what we hope for. But they also still in that mess, teach us something about the goodness of God and this kingdom of God that we are on our way towards. If we focus so much on getting it right, we lose the rightness of it.
3: It's interesting, there's people, we've talked about how church family is is sort of a commitment and found family, but there are also people here who have been here for generations, and things get messy, and then they'll say things to me like, well, we've been, we've gotten through worse, where the collective story becomes what holds them together. So there's value in that too. Like, I don't want to just diminish the sort of the, the role of the history, that shared story. I think there's... The story of a widow and daughter-in-law coming together and being found family, but there's also stories of the heritage and history being what carries family forward. So there are people in my congregation who have been here for generations, and they, they tell me stories about, oh, this is when the, the church b- burned down, or Her church burned down, and they show me pictures from the newspaper clippings when I visit their house, and then there's people who are coming here who have never been in church life together, and being able to have room for both. That's, that's the tricky part. Where there's that sense that we've been saying as commitment and belonging and enough to go around. It goes back to that statement about national identity where that
2: America's a, a nation of immigrants. We're with a few exceptions of some First Nations folks. None of us started here. Like in the church, if we go back far enough, all of our stories are stories of some people searching and finding and becoming family whether they're new or old we're all people who who are here because someone chose to be here it's fascinating the way some of these themes just can connect both to our church life together and to our own biological
1: families that we're a part of and how perfect a metaphor really that has become for for who the church is this has been a really interesting conversation i hope uh, folks saw glimpses of their own families and church families in the conversation here and maybe have a, another metaphor uh, from pop culture scripture to apply to their story, but we'll cut off our conversation here, even though there are many more families we have yet to discuss. (laughs) We'll take a month off in July, but don't worry, we'll be back later in the summer. So this has been Popcorn with the Pastors, a Coffee with the Pastors podcast feature.
0: Live for the glory of God and our neighbor's good. Thank you to guests, hosts, Nathan Hollenberg and Andy Duffy. The primary purpose of this podcast is for conversation and faith exploration. It is intended for private non-commercial use and does not necessarily reflect the opinion of any agency or
2: organization.